0: All right, welcome back into the Nick Baugh Podcast. It is Thursday, March 31st, and we have the final four coming up this weekend. If you missed it, make sure you go check it out because it's on the podcast feed. I had a great podcast chat with Jay Billis of ESPN. He gave his thoughts on... Uh, a lot of uh, what we're going to see this weekend with North Carolina and Duke and Kansas and Villanova and, and a bunch of different things. Always a good conversation with Jay. I found the 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 parts uh, about Jay's journey in terms of you know, he was really the first guy to jump on board with Mike Krzyzewski, uh before Coach K was really Coach K. And it was interesting to hear. Jay Billis' thoughts on Coach K and and just the fact that this is his final season and all those sorts of things. I urge everybody to go check that out if you have not already done so. But because college basketball is so near and dear to my heart, because the Final Four is so freaking juicy this year, I wanted to give my in-depth thoughts on these matchups. Plus, I got a few things I want to hit on with St. Peter's and the NCAA tournament stuff. So it's going to be a, a college basketball, March Madness-filled, Final Four-filled podcast today. Because, man, again, Duke, North Carolina in in one Final Four game. Best rivalry in college basketball meeting in the Final Four. Coach K's final season doesn't get much better than that. Than that, And then you have Kansas and Villanova in, in the other semifinal, where you, you look at it's Villanova's third Final Four since 2016. It's Bill Self and Kansas' fourth Final Four since 2008. I mean, just just big time. Big time programs, big time matchups. So I want to give some thoughts on each team and then discuss kind of each game and what I'm seeing for for each game. Let's start with Kansas and Nova because obviously these are two teams – with what I do with Fox and covering the Big East, I know Villanova really well. And then obviously with being a former Jayhawk, knowing Bill Self, having played for him, having the opportunity to go down to Lawrence and call a handful of games a year on the Jayhawk Network ESPN+. Plus, uh, I have did four Kansas games this year. I know Kansas extremely well. Um, these are, in my opinion, these are the two best college basketball coaches in the country. Like I get that Coach K, he's probably the goat of college basketball coaches, but right now, today, 2022, the the two best college basketball coaches are Jay Wright and Bill Self. And you watch these two teams play, and honestly, one of the first things that stands out to me is just how well coached they are. So this should be a really, really, really good game. Let's start with the Villanova side of things. Um you know, Jay Jay Billis on my podcast. Uh he said that he thinks Villanova has the best culture in college basketball, and it's really hard to argue that, and I tend to agree with him. I mean, this this six-year stretch for Villanova is 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 amazing. They already have two national titles. They have now three Final Fours in six years, and they're going for a third national title. It's amazing. And the stretch of point guards during this time has been impressive, from Archie Diacono to Jalen Brunson and now Colin Gillespie. It's just uh, what Jay Wright has built I agree with what Jay has said. It's probably the best culture in college basketball today. And I, you know, doing what I do with Fox for college basketball, and and I've been calling games for for eight years now. So I've been calling Villanova games for about eight years now. So I get to see a lot of teams' practices, a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of shootarounds. I get to see how they operate. And I think I've said this before, but it bears repeating because they're in the the elite or in the Final Four again here. Nobody, and I mean nobody is as mature as Villanova is. When being able to watch them practice, watch them go through a shoot-around, it is the most buttoned-up, business-like, mature team-slash-program I have seen in my eight years of being able to be intimately involved with the behind-the-scenes stuff for college basketball. It's incredible. And to me, that translates into the games that you see, there's a steadiness, there's a maturity, there's a, a collective intelligence that Villanova plays with that is real. And the other thing that stands out whenever you c- can watch these, you know, watch Villanova play live in your courtside is their body language is excellent. That they, The way they react to things, the way they stick together, the way they communicate with each other on the floor, the way they interact with their coaches t- is excellent to me. So, you know, they're intangibles are off the charts and then their tangible aspect of their their program and their team is is really impressive as well you know I, I've a huge part of coaching a huge part of ba- coaching and basketball in particular college basketball is getting your team to all see things five as one instead of having five individual agendas, five individual sets of eyes and thoughts on things, if you can get your team to see things five as one, that's really, really when special things can happen, right? Like, just, okay, what are we trying to accomplish on offense? What are we trying to take away on defense? What does a good possession look like for our team collectively? Getting people to think like that. Then, obviously, within that, there are individual pieces, but what does each piece need to do individually for that collective goal? Nova is off the charts at that. They know exactly what they collectively are trying to do offensively and defensively, especially offensively, you know, jump stop, the shot fakes, the extra passes. All that is on display, and it is impressive to watch. but you know it's when you look at this team though, and it's much like Kansas, so we 'll get to them for a second. this Villanova team isn't close to as talented as their other national title teams i mean they're in particular their their 2018 team I mean that team was ridiculous that's a outside of two thousand and one Duke. I think the 2018 Nova team's the best college basketball team I've seen. I mean, you throw maybe some of those, the back-to-back Florida natty title teams. You throw maybe, I thought Kansas in 08 was really good. But, I mean, Brunson, Bridges, Devin Chinzo, uh, I mean, it, Eric Paschal, Omari Spellman. Like, that team was ridiculous. But this team's not quite as talented as that team, but they're old, they're smart, they're tough, and they're experienced. But unfortunately, the biggest storyline for Villanova heading into this weekend in terms of looking at the game is obviously the injury to Justin Moore. He tore his Achilles right at the end of the Houston game, and it was just heartbreaking to watch. And it is a big blow to Villanova. Justin Moore, he's their second leading scorer. He leads the team in shot attempts. He leads the team in free throw attempts. He's probably their best perimeter defender. And while Colin Gillespie is unquestionably Villanova's MVP in heart and soul, I think Justin Moore is Villanova's actually, Villanova's most talented player. So this is a big blow. And what's hard about losing Justin Moore is Villanova is already in a lacked depth. So Villanova basically becomes a five-man team now. Like you might throw Brian Antoine out there for spot minutes here and there, whatever, you know. But this is basically Villanova. They're going to throw out five guys. They're going to throw out Caleb Daniels, Colin Gillespie, Brandon Slater, Jermaine Samuels, and Eric Dixon. That's it. They might might find spot minutes here and there for those guys, but they are going to be a five-man team. So obviously with this game, that presents some issues. Villanova staying out of foul trouble is going to be crucial because they really don't have a bench to turn to. So Villanova's margin for error is really, really small in a variety of levels given their situation right now. But what's interesting is I do think Villanova is equipped to give Kansas a major fight. Even with the Justin Moore injury, this game is going to be a 40-minute war because Villanova is a really difficult team to play against. They play slow, which is what they need to do given their depth and injury situation. On Ken Palm, Villanova's average possession length ranks 349th in the country out of 358 teams. Basically, Villanova chews as much of that shot clock on offense as any team in the country, which is going to be – I've always said it's easier to slow a game down than it is to speed it up. Villanova tries to slow that thing down. Villanova plays small ball where they can sometimes play five guards where they, they're switching a lot of the screens. They will post their guards, including Colin Gillespie – and all those things can be unorthodox and hard to play against. Plus, Villanova's a three-point centric team. Now, I will say losing Justin Moore hurts their three-point firepower, but still, you know, Colin Gillespie, Caleb Daniels, even Jermaine Samuels, Braden Slater, they can make threes. About 39% of Villanova's points come from the three-point line, which ranks 25, 25th most in the country. They're ranked 25th in that category in terms of percentage of points coming from three. So they're going to take a lot of threes. They rely on making a lot of threes. So whenever that's the case, you're dealing with a team that, you know, they could throw in 10, 12 threes, and you do that against anybody, and it's game on. Looking at the other side, looking at, at, at Kansas, I get a few thoughts on Kansas. I'll say this. You know, it's so cool. All the way back on November 3rd, Kansas played their only exhibition game on their schedule against Emporia State, and I happened to get the call to be on the call for that game on ESPN Plus. I drove down to Lawrence, Kansas, went to shoot around, talked to the coaches, went to the game, called the game. And it's just it's really cool to see a team to see a team in, in where they started on November third in that first exhibition game. Talk to Coach Self about what he liked about the team, what was concerning about the team or whatever and then see where they are now. And listen, putting on the headset and sitting in Allen Fieldhouse and calling that first exhibition game, don't get me wrong, I thought Kansas was good when I saw them in that game. But I'd be lying to you if I left that exhibition game thinking, tell you what, that's a Final Four team. I don't think I was thinking that. I thought they were good. I don't think I thought, boy, that team is headed to New Orleans for the Final Four. But here we are a handful of months later, and they are in New Orleans in the Final Four. The job Bill Self has done with this group has been incredible, man. And he's here's the thing. I play for the man. He coaches hard. He doesn't give those guys a day off. He doesn't give them a playoff. He doesn't let them settle at all. And what's interesting, though, is that he, like within all that tough old-school coaching, he fosters an environment of guys going and playing with confidence. So... I just think Bill Self is – he's an incredible coach. He's in the Hall of Fame for a reason, and this is just another of the latest example as to why he's in the Hall of Fame. Because the growth this Kansas team has taken is impressive. Because, again, like I just said with Villanova, it bears repeating, and I think any Kansas fan listening to this would agree, this isn't close to one of Bill Self's most talented teams. But here they are in the Final Four. There have been much more talented teams not make it – out of the first weekend or past the Sweet 16 or into the Final Four. But this team, you know, I will say this team really fits together well. They've come together well. The, they've taken collective strides. They've gotten better each week. The consistency from Ochia Obagi has been in- incredible. The consistency and development from both wings have has really been impressive. In in CB Christian Brown and and Ochai those guys have. I mean, you can kind of one hand the amount of times you felt like you walked away from a game and thought, "Boy, C- o- Ochai and CB didn't have it today." Like those guys brought it more often than not. The depth of their backcourt is really good. This team, it's it the pieces fit together. Right, Like, sometimes, again, you're building – the thing The thing that I think college basketball – again, I think I, – a lot of college basketball coaches, they try to just stockpile talent, and that's a part of it, right? Like, in basketball, there's a non-negotiable level of talent you got to have, but you're also building a team. And I just look at how the team all fits for Kansas, and I like how the pieces fit together like a puzzle. And, you know, if – now you can – you can maybe take this too far with with NCAA tournament results, but I think when you look at the NCAA tournament results and then think about the totality of the season, I think the Big 12 was the best conference in the country, and Kansas won the Big 12 regular season and tournament title, which is telling. So you can sit there and, like I'm doing here, and kind of poo-poo their overall talent level in terms of pitting it against some of the other Kansas teams or whatever. Listen, man, these, these these dudes are pretty damn good. And I thought it all came to fruition in the second half against Miami in that Elite Eight game. I thought that second half against Miami was the best half any team has played in the NCAA tournament. They outscored the Hurricanes forty-seven to fifteen. It was total domination. Total domination. Couple of things with the, with the, with Kansas, and we'll get to a prediction and, and move on to the other game. Uh, boy, I tell you, Remy Martin. How about this guy? His explosion late this year has been amazing to watch. And his journey this year has been an interesting one. Here's a guy that was one of the most sought-after transfers when he entered the portal out of Arizona State a year ago. He he led the Pac-12 in scoring at 19 points per game. He was a big-time scorer for the Sun Devils. He goes to Kansas. He's tabbed as the preseason Big 12 player of the year. So there's a lot of expectations on him. But there were some growing pains with him fitting into how Kansas plays. Listen, at Arizona State, Remy could kind of do whatever Remy wanted to do. He could take any shot he wanted. He could gamble on defense. He, Remy Remy Martin was his own boss and could do whatever he wanted to do for years at Arizona State. And he had to kind of break a lot of those habits. He had to change a lot of the ways he did things and tighten up a lot in his game. So Remy Martin had to earn his minutes. He wasn't starting. He he. Was you know he was good early, but I don't think he was Big Twelve preseason Player of the Year type level, and so he never really got it rolling. And then he got hurt. He hurt his knee right at the end of December, right around, might have been New Year's Day. It was in a game that I was calling. It might have been he was either against Nevada or George Mason. He banged knees, and he then was banged up, and he was nursing that. wasn't practicing, missed a handful of games, and he's kind of been a shell of what we all thought he could be until. March, Remy Martin, think about this. He was averaging seven points per game heading into the NCAA tournament. He's averaged 17 points per game in the NCAA tournament. Just, it's incredible. Uh, when you, if you wrote down, okay, what are some weaknesses or maybe some holes in Kansas's team? One of the things you would have wrote down is, I would have said point guard scoring would have been one of the weaknesses. Don't get me wrong, Dwan, don't get me wrong, Dwan Harris is a good player. He's good at defense and intangible things and passing and running, all that stuff. He's not a great scorer. Remy Martin has kind of filled that void and it's changed Kansas's team. Just an amazing story. What's even what's interesting with this story too for this Final Four run is Ochai Abaji, who's an all-American. He he hasn't even played great and they're in the Final Four. Now he played pretty good. He he probably played his best game against Miami. But in some ways, I think it'll be interesting this weekend. How uh, I've always kind of applauded Remy, or excuse me, uh, Ochai's ability to let the game come to him. Like he doesn't shot hunt, but he stays aggressive. I'll be interested to see how he balances that because I felt like in in throughout a lot of this tournament, in particular that that Miami game in the first half, he was a little too passive. He's got I just I think this is the weekend. Like they can't afford Ochai Abaj. Kansas isn't going to win two games this weekend, if Ochai goes out and has, you know, nine and ten points. Right? They need their all to, – to, to cut down nets and win the final four, Win in the final four, you need your stud to be a stud. So it'll be interesting to see what, what Ochai Abadji looks like this weekend. The, the last thing with Kansas before we get to the uh, prediction is uh, I don't think Jalen Wilson gets talked about enough. I think Jalen Wilson – like, I can't express how underrated this guy is and I can't express how important he is to Kansas. I mean, Jalen Wilson at 6'8", plays the four. He's their best rebounder. He's versatile at that, that power forward spot. You can play small and put him at the five. He can guard bigger guys. He can guard guards. He can attack off the dribble. You can run weave stuff and he can drive guys off the bounce, which is really hard from that power forward spot. He can make threes. Plus, I think one of his most unique abilities is his ability to rebound and then himself push the transition fast break for Kansas, which is, you know, that's difficult for a lot of teams to deal with is when a a guy can, a a big man can rebound and push And he can do that. And that's where Kansas is at their best is when they are running. So when you're watching this weekend, just – J- Jalen Wilson is a is a valuable Jayhawk and a guy that I don't think it's talked about enough with with this game Kansas and Nova um I I like Kansas to win this game I just look at the injury to, to Justin Moore and I think it's probably just too much to overcome for Villanova right they lo- I think I think Justin Moore is their most all-around talented player. He's second-leading scorer, best perimeter defender. Villanova becomes razor-thin in terms of their depth. They basically become a five-man team. That's a lot to overcome. And... Few few things I'll be keeping an eye on is is obviously tempo. I talked to you about how Villanova wants to slow it down, and they have to given their depth because you do not want to get into a fast break game with Kansas because that's where they're at their best. Who controls tempo will be key. It is hard to speed Villanova up, but nevertheless, Kansas is going to try and do it. The three-point line is going to be really important. The way Nova wins this game to me is by hitting 10 or 11 or 12 threes. Both teams have to play accordingly. I think fouls and free throws are going to be interesting to monitor. I told you that Villanova can't get into foul trouble. Kansas has to be the aggressor with that. they got to throw the ball into McCormick. they got to drive it right at Villanova. Because Villanova gets fouled with the way teams bite on their shot fakes and jumping into guys and posting their guards. And listen, Villanova makes their free throws. They're the number one free throw shooting team in the country. So free throws and fouls are going to be important to watch as well. And those shot fakes and Kansas's discipline on those is going to be crucial. The other thing I'll be interested in is the post-ups for, in particular, Colin Gillespie. The one thing I'm concerned with for Kansas is I don't know if Kansas has a great matchup for Colin Gillespie. Because Dewan Harris and Remy Martin, those guys are small. Like, I was struck. I'm always st- going to shoot-arounds for KU and being around. Like, I was struck at how small Remy Martin and Dewan Harris are. Those guys are small guards. And it's, Colin Gillespie isn't huge, but Colin's a strong guy. And he, again, he's going to post up. How the game is officiated in the post is going to be crucial. Remy Martin loves to try to take charges. Mark my word, Remy, probably the first time he gets posted up by Gillespie, is going to do that bang, bang, and then let Gillespie hit him in the chest and try to snap his head back and, and draw an offensive foul. Those types of plays could be important because, again, Villanova can't get into foul trouble. But I'll just be curious if Bill Self wants to send a double at Colin Gillespie, uh, who the, if, if they're going to put Dewan Harris and Remy Martin on him. I don't know how they're going to match up with, with Gillespie. So, again, I think Kansas wins this game. I think the Justin Moore injury is probably just too much to overcome. Kansas is playing really good. I think Kansas is able to get it done. I think it's a pretty close game, but I think Kansas will pull away uh, late. Uh, I think the spread's around four. I think that's about right. I think they'll win anywhere at five, eight points in that area. Can't wait to watch this one. You look at the other game, Duke and North Carolina. Um, with Duke, I'll be honest, my eyes tell me Duke is the best team. I think they have the best roster, the most talent, and the best individual player in Ben Carroll. Now, the best team doesn't always win. And heading into the NCAA tournament, one of the things I was curious to see was how the pressure – of Coach K's last season would impact this team in the tournament. Because you saw a little bit of a preview and glimpse to that with the last game of the regular season for Mike his last game at Cameron Indoor where they hosted North Carolina. And Duke, they looked tight. They played nervous and got smacked by Carolina inside Cameron Indoor. So I was like, ooh, I wonder how that's going to look in March in the NCAA tournament. But to me, maybe that game was good to kind of get some of that out of the way. Because right now, that the pressure of Coach K's last season, to me, has kind of manifested itself in a positive way for this team. This team looks like they are motivated, locked in, focused, and on a mission to send Coach K out the right way. Now, I said that Kansas's second half against Miami was probably the best half any team has played in the tournament. And I think that's true. But maybe the best seven or eight-minute stretch any team has played in the NCAA tournament was Duke's final seven or eight minutes against Texas Tech. That was equally impressive. Number one defense in the country. I think they made their last eight shots, shot like 70% from the field in the second half. That was incredible. But Duke, man, they just got so much size. They got so many playmakers. And Paulo Bancaro is just a monster. Just nobody really has the type of guy that can guard him because you know, he's 6'10. He's 250. He can handle it. He can pass it. He's got good feel and vision. He can shoot it. You can, you know, you can set ball screens for him. He can come off and make reads. He's just a really, really good player. So again, to me, when I look at Duke, they're the most talented team. They got the best roster. They're playing really well right now. And I think that Coach K pressure has really manifested itself in a positive way. When I look at North Carolina, they are a prime example of, of a couple of things. peaking at the right time. And then how, it, how a season is long and how you can't write a team off both from the outside looking in and in the inside, like you can't think, "Oh, the season's done." When it's you're in the middle of January, right? Like the season's long, and you got to keep on kind of chipping away at it. You got to you got to keep working, keep fighting, keep improving, because at some point things might click, and things have kind of clicked for this team. Now, I will say, let's not have revisionist history on this team because a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, North Carolina, people were crazy to write them up. It's like, eh, North Carolina won a very good team for the first half of the season this year. Purdue dominated them in the non-con. Tennessee dominated them. Kentucky dominated them in the non-con. I mean, North Carolina, they were 12-6 and to start the season. They were 4-3 at one point in the ACC. But they finished the season really strong. And I think that win at Duke kind of – to end the regular season was a really big confidence boost for them. They felt like they were trending in the right direction. Had to be a hell of a feeling. Could you imagine what that locker room was like, where you went and spoiled Coach K's retirement ceremony, for lack of a better term, with all those former players in the house? Pretty, I mean, that that's a galvanizing moment for that group. But what's interesting to me with with this North Carolina team, where this is first year head coach Hubert Davis, who's an assistant under Roy Williams, is how different this North Carolina team is when you compare to compare them to Roy's teams. Like I figured, with keeping Hubert Davis as the head coach, the identity would kind of st- stay the same, and it it kind of has changed a little bit, at least in this short in this season so far. North Carolina used to be kind of a kick-your-ass-on-the-offensive-glass kind of a team. They have consistently over the last decade been either number one or number in the top 10 or top 15 of offensive rebounding every year. And this team isn't really like that. And while they play fast at times, it's not the same level of transition that you see from – you're accustomed to seeing from Roy Williams' teams. So it's been a little bit different. But, man – Hubert Davis has, has stuck with this group, stayed positive with this group, and this is a dangerous team that is peaking at the right time. And I'll say this, I always love being able to see teams in person because I think sometimes you get a, you walk away with a different perspective on them. It's one thing to see them on film. Another thing to – or on TV, I was in Fort Worth because that's where Creighton's NCAA tournament first site was, and seeing them courtside, watching them blast Marquette, and watching them blast Baylor, and now they almost pissed it away, but they got up 25 on the defending national champs. They were impressive live. Baycott, Manic, Caleb Love, R.J. Davis, leaky those guys are him. They passed the eye test for sure. Armando Baycott is a total stud. Brady Manick is that classic stretch four who's skilled that's a tough guy to deal with when you pair him with Baycott at the five and guards like Love and Davis in ball screen situations. And Caleb Love and R.J. Davis are two dynamic guards who can really fill it up. You've seen that throughout the this NCAA tournament. Those guys can really go get it. I like their core a lot. And again, this is a team that is peaking right now, and it's also a team, they're not going to be afraid of Duke at all. I mean, they beat Duke. Which leads me to this game, Duke and Carolina. Greatest rivalry in college basketball in the Final Four, Coach K's last season. I mean, geez, just doesn't get much better than that. Again, these two teams split in the regular season. Duke hammered North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And then North Carolina returned the favor, spoiling Coach K's final home game in Cameron uh, about a month ago. I like Duke in this game. I, I thought Jay Billis pointed out something interesting within this game, and, and that is who does Brady Manick guard? Like, you can't put him on Bar- Bancaro. That's a that's a disaster. So do you put him on A.J. Griffin? I don't think you want to do that because Griffin's pretty, pretty dynamic. I just don't know. Manick doesn't seem like there's a good matchup for him in this game. And while I think Manick is an extremely valuable offensive piece for Carolina, it could be tough to hide him on defense a little bit given how Duke – and throws out a five man roster and, and and all those guys that can make plays. And within that, like I think the oversimplified reason I like Duke in this game is this. You know, so these two teams know each other inside and out. They know their their pet plays, tendencies, personnel, all those things. They're conference foes, right? They've seen each other twice already. So when you combine that familiarity level being really high with the nature of how a lot of final four games can become I think the game largely comes down to who can win one-on-one more often and just go make a play themselves. Who can just go break down their guy and make a play? And I think Duke just has more firepower and playmakers than North Carolina in that, in that regard. When you look at Ben Caro and Wendell Moore and A.J. Griffin and Roach and Keels, like, Duke has five dudes who can go make a play at a high level. And w- then you have the best player on the floor in Paolo Banchero. And when you combine all that with Williams at, and Theo John at the rim, the size, the length, I just I like Duke to win one on one more, and I like Duke to alter things at the rim slightly more as well. So I'm going to pick Duke to win this game, but it's going to be a hell of a game. It's going to be a hell of a game. I can't wait for that one, man. I mean, Duke, Carolina, Coach K's last season for the final four. I mean, oh, my God. So, obviously, when I peek ahead of the national title game, you, know, you got Duke and Kansas in terms of my picks. I lean towards Duke. Again, like I've been saying, I just think they they look like the best team to me. They got the best roster of offensive talent. They have the most individual playmakers. There's a reason Duke is the betting favorite in the eyes of Vegas to cut down nets on Monday. So, I'll I'll lean Duke. But what's interesting is, and I'm, I'm not saying this to Hedge, I don't think I'd be stunned to see any of the four teams that are in New Orleans win it all. I guess if I had to say, I'd honestly say the team I'd be most surprised to win the whole thing now would probably be Villanova, just given the injury to Justin Moore and their lack of depth. But as I say that, I mean, it's Villanova, man. They got two titles in the last six years. It's Jay Wright. Colin Gillespie's a warrior. So, I mean, would we really be stunned to see Nova cutting down Nets? Not really. Kansas? I wouldn't be stunned to see them either. I mean, the way they looked against Miami, holy... Wow. And then North Carolina, listen, they've maybe had the toughest path to get to the Final Four and knocking out Baylor and UCLA. So nothing would really surprise me this weekend. But... To put it on the record, I'll pick Duke over North Carolina and then Kansas over Villanova, and then I'll pick Duke over Kansas. Even though y'all know I'm gonna be rooting like hell for Kansas, uh that that's how I'm gonna I'm gonna make the the predictions. I can't wait, man. I can't wait for these games. This is gonna be a great, great Final Four weekend. Let me transition into a few other NCAA tournament thoughts, some broad things, and I'll then I'll, I'll we'll get out of here. We got to talk about St. Peter's real quick. So St. Peter's, 15 seed, the Peacocks, their historical run came to an end. First 15 seed to make the Elite Eight. And, you know, I called St. Peter's MAC championship game on Westwood One. So I saw them live in person in Atlantic City on March 12th. And so I was courtside as they, they punched their ticket to the NCAA tournament. But in preparing for that game, I also watched about five St. Peter's games. So... I watched a lot of St. Peter's heading into the conference tournament and the NCAA tournament, and I wish I could be that analyst, that guy that said, "Well, I saw this coming." I didn't. You know, you you probably heard my NCAA tournament preview podcast that I had released before the before the tournament got started. That I I picked against St. Peter's, and I said on Chicken Nick that uh, my other podcast, you can go check out if you want to hear the most ridiculous you know, 45 minutes of your week every week, uh, that I wasn't all that impressed with him in person. And then I even do some hits uh, digitally with Bet Online, and I pick Kentucky. One of the picks I gave them was Kentucky to cover the 17-point spread in the opening round over St. Peter's. So, you know, I didn't see this coming. And so not only did they, they not only won their first round game, St. Peter's did, which we've seen before. Like, we've seen, hell, last year, Oral Roberts, 15 seed, beat Ohio State, made it to the Sweet Sixteen. But St. Peter's went a step further. They beat Kentucky. They beat Murray State. They beat Purdue. Made it all the way to the Elite Eight. We're on the doorstep of potentially getting to the Final Four. Got popped by North Carolina. But I didn't see this coming at all. And, you know, first of all, like St. Peter's, you realize, they didn't win a notable non-conference game. Like, you go go look at their, their schedule. They lost to VCU. They lost to St. John's. Their only Division One non-con win was against LIU. At one point this year, St. Peter's was 12 and 11. Their offensive numbers were not good, and that was that kind of matched when you watched them on film. They kind of struggled to score consistently, but the one thing they were was they were a tough, scrappy group, and their defensive numbers were really good. They were a top 30 defense according to Ken Palm, but for me. I made the mistake of thinking that the defense and in particular that rim protection wouldn't fully translate mainly because their top defender was Casey Nadefo, who was a three time MACC defensive player of the year in their conference there. He was their shot blocker rim protector and he's only six foot seven and seeing him in person, you know, he's, he's got great instincts blocking shots, but he's only six, seven. And you know, I, I was sitting there thinking to myself, okay, you, you were defending you, your defense at the rim against Mac teams was good. What does that look like against Kentucky and other power conference teams? I ended up being wrong, dead wrong. But to me, it's, it's not about me being wrong or right or whatever. I still feel like the real beauty of this, this peacock St. Peter's run is really the beauty of March and the NCAA tournament with just the with the reality that anything can happen in March Madness. For 40 minutes in the game of basketball, in March, anything can happen. And the hope that comes with the NCAA tournament. We've seen that over the last handful of years, from UMBC, a 16 seed, beating Virginia, the one seed, to now a 15 seed, getting all the way to the doorstep of the Final Four, to the Elite Eight. To me, St. Peter's and the beauty of their run represents the beauty of the NCAA tournament and the beauty of the sport of college basketball and its postseason structure. See, this is the issue with with my issue with the college football playoff and college football structure. Because all I hear from people is, oh, God, you, you really think Central Florida would beat Bama? Come on, man. You really think Boise State would beat Clemson? On and on and on. Right? And my answer all the time is like, no, I mean, if they played in football, you know, if Bama played Boise State in football, like I'd pick Bama. But you don't know who would win. Because much like St. Peter's in Kentucky, I pick Kentucky to win. But the reality is we don't know. And what's great is in basketball, we let them settle it in a game. We find out in a game. Let's play for 40 minutes, see what happens. See, the St. Peter's story doesn't exist in college football because that sport doesn't allow for it to really exist. And it's just unfortunate. The beauty of the NCAA tournament, the beauty of a true, real playoff, is it gets settled on the floor. And within that, this is always my biggest gripe with college football. Every college basketball team controls their own destiny. St. Peter's showed up to Atlantic City on March 9th the site of the MAAC Conference Tournament, and they knew they were in full control of their destiny for the next month. They said, oh, we got, we win three games, we win the conference tournament, we're in the NSA tournament. We get to the NSA tournament, anything can happen. For 40 minutes, we beat our first-round opponent, Kentucky, peace, bye. We beat our second-round opponent, Murray State, Psh, get out of here. We beat our third-round opponent, Purdue. Nice try. Get out of here. And they lost to North Carolina. But who was in control of this entire run from March 9th till today? St. Peter's was. St. Peter's was. So I just love the St. Peter's story and run, and even though it made me look stupid for doubting them, I've never been happier to be made look stupid. Couple other thoughts with uh, with the NCAA tournament. Um, this isn't the reviews at the end of games. I mean, Jesus, I, this isn't a new topic, but that doesn't mean it's not worth continuing to discuss it. But man, we got to figure out something with these reviews at the end of games, don't we? I mean, I can't be alone in this. Like a, a part of the fun of March Madness in the NCAA tournament is the drama at the end of games and the constant. Video reviews and going to the monitor just ruins the drama. It completely ruins it. It just takes away from the moment. Now don't get me wrong. I'm all for getting things right, and I'm not one of those people that thinks we need to abolish all and of get, 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 all all replay and get rid of replay. Like if we can get it right, we should try to get it right. I just I'm I'm not going to sit here and turn the mic and say I know exactly what those details look like. I just know how it's currently structured stinks right now. The first of all, the arbitrary two minute mark at the end of regulation and OT as the point of now we can review things kind of feels silly. Like it's always funny when like there's something happens, but it's at the 206 mark, and you're like, oh, if it was six seconds later, we could have looked at it, but well, you know, can't do it now. That just feels silly. And but here's the thing is within that two, because of that two minute mark inside of two minutes. There's this, to me, there's this desire and this, like, it feels like we feel the need to review every single play in the final two minutes now. Like, it feels like almost every out-of-bounds call gets reviewed in the final two minutes. I mean, it's like, okay, just because we can review it, like, doesn't mean we have to review everything that happens in the final two minutes. Which, again, just kills the drama of, of the moment. But most important... And I've been saying this for years. I think one of the first things we need to do, I don't know if we need to go to a challenge system, whatever, or but to me one of the most the the easiest thing we need to implement is there needs to be a time limit on these reviews. I don't know if it's 90 seconds, if you want to do if you want to go two minutes, whatever it is. If after 90 seconds with six different angles of zoomed-in super slow mo, if you aren't sure which Pinky fingertip the ball. Then the call stands. That what it was called on the floor. We're moving on. Just give me ninety second clock. If after ninety seconds you can you it isn't definitive. Call stands. We're playing ball. We got to keep things moving. These reviews are just brutal for the the excitement and drama at the end of games. I think it's a bad look for the sport. So, to me, they got to be those reviews and how it's structured. They got to be altered and improved upon. And speaking of of kind of officiating and different things. I don't know if this is all officiating, but I mean, a lot of it is. So you realize this past weekend, the, the, this, the elite eight weekend, the elite eight was the lowest scoring elite eight since 1985. Think about that. This 2022 lowest scoring elite eight since 1985. There was and, and what's amazing is that the Elite Eight kind of jives with what the tournament looked like, where man, did we see a lot of grinder, low-scoring, offensively challenged basketball games. I caught myself, and I was texting my brother throughout the, the the tournament. I caught myself as I watched the tournament, especially the opening weekend, I was wondering out loud if, man, have defenses like is defense officially just ahead of offense in college basketball now? Like, are defenses just better than offenses now? Like, what's going on with a lot of these scores? Like, you watch the Ohio State-Loyola-Chicago game. I mean, that looked like a WWF wrestling match that was a low-scoring grinder because, man, we there have been a lot of games this tournament that have seen some, you know, 15-point... 15 points and a half, 17 points and a half, 20 points and a half, 23 points and a half. There's just – there's been a lot of low-scoring games. And I just hate when I watch those kinds of games, I just hate that there's the low-hanging fruit for the average college basketball hater out there with some of these games Be like, oh, look at this, no one can score, come on. Listen, it's my favorite sport. There's nothing I love more than college basketball and I will always watch, but that doesn't mean I think it's perfect. And you know, so you kind of go, what's going on with this? Now I do think defenses have really improved, but a lot of it is I think I echo what people like Jay Billis have written about and talked about that I think the game has probably got the, the game is probably too physical right now. the college basketball game. And within that, I think there are way too many charges called. Now, listen real close when I say this. The greatest mainstream fallacy out there in terms of a narrative that is just nonsense to me, the greatest mainstream fallacy out there in basketball is that the game was more physical in the 80s and 90s. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Here's how that gets misconstrued. You know where it was more physical and was more violent? At the rim. You could go hammer somebody at the rim. Yes, the plays at the rim were more physical. You could crush someone, and it was just a common foul. Now we have flagrant ones, flagrant twos, all this stuff. The plays at the rim were more violent back in the day. I'll give you that. But people equate a hard foul at the rim and they expand that to like the, the rest of the game was like that. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. I totally disagree. There is more clutching and grabbing and overall physicality in today's game than there was in the 80s and 90s. Again, people mistake hard fouls at the rim. And just the fact that there were more, maybe there were more fights back in the day. You know, where there's Doctor J and Larry Bird. I mean, people used to get in like fights, and may- maybe there'd be a technical foul assessed, but a lot of times they'd break it up and then just keep on playing. But people mistake those like isolated things. Oh, you could, there were more fights back in the day. Yeah, okay, yes, but what about the the other aspects of of and the totality of a game? Oh, you you ever seen Bill Ambeer hit a guy at the rim? Yeah, I have. It was was crazy violent. What about the other parts of of the game? What about the other parts of it? I think college basketball needs to tighten up its physicality again. And I think college basketball, a big part of it will be not calling as many charges. Now, maybe my thing with charges is like a deep-rooted part of my brain with, it's a, maybe a deep-rooted thing with with me because Coach Altman used to be all over me all the time about wanting me to take charges. Nick, ball, you got to take charges. Ball, slide over, take a charge. Ball, you got to take charges. Bud, the what I want from you is you need to be a charge-taking son of a gun. Like, he guys, he was on my ass every single day. Ball, take charges. Ball, take charges. I just never was good at it. I didn't have instincts for it. I just it was like if I slid over to help my my thought was to help not to slide over and set my feet and take a charge. I just I wasn't I wasn't good at it. So maybe I have some deep rooted like thing with charges. But I guess I've just always I've always not loved the secondary help defender charge play. To me we deter driving and attacking the rim and reward a dangerous collision. Where a guy just slides over and slides underneath a guy. I think we need to encourage more drives to the basket, right? We talk about, oh, there's too many threes today. Well, one of the ways I think you can encourage m- people not taking as many threes, even though the, I know the Atlanta analytics suggests to take a lot of threes, but one of the ways to encourage not taking as many threes is don't call a fucking charge every time someone drives to the basket. We're on, like A lot of plays at the rim now, or at the very least, result in an attempted charge. So again to me we deter driving and attacking the basket and reward a dangerous collision. And I think we need to encourage more drives to the rim. I think we also need to kind of rethink what the charge kind of means. Like a, a way people have referred to a charge before. Have you ever heard people call it a player control foul? Yeah, it was a player control foul. It's a player control foul, which to me like if you think about like if you think about it that makes sense. And that's how we need to think about it. Like, if a player is out of control and barrels into a defender that is in a a set legal guarding position, that's a charge, and that's one thing. But a lot of charges now, to me, feature a ball handler who is in control and sometimes sliding away but bumps the defender, who snaps their head back. A lot of people have mastered that element of it, too, and falls like they got shot with a rifle. And boom, refs love to call a charge, and we're going the other way. So I think there, too many charges have been called. But a lot of the, the, the physicality, the charges, I think college basketball has to work on some of this stuff. Because I don't know, I just sit and watch the whole tournament, and man, did I see a lot of grinders. Man, did I see a lot of low-scoring games. And listen, I love a good defensive team and a good defensive possession as much as anyone but I also can see the issues with the game and the need for less physicality and more offense. Again, we just saw the lowest scoring Elite Eight since 1985. That's kind of hard to make sense of when skill and shot making is, is really high nowadays for scoring to be down. Last thing I was thinking about was, isn't it kind of amazing... That we used to not have access to all the games for the NCAA tournament. Some of my young listeners not might not really remember this, but like we used to be, we used to be at the total mercy of whatever CBS game CBS chose to show us. Remember, you remember when you'd be watching games and it'd be like that eight minute mark of the second half. And all of a sudden Greg Gumbo would come on and be like, we interrupt this game. We're going to send you to San Antonio for the conclusion of Boise State and Providence. Enjoy. And you'd go to that game and you'd be like, oh, I want to watch the other game. It's just amazing that we used to, that's how we used to consume the tournament. You'd see the scores maybe on top of the screen and you'd be like, holy shit, look at that. Te- oh my God. Princeton's making a run. They're, they're, it's a two-point game. I want to go, go to that game. Or your favorite team. If CBS didn't show them, you, know, you didn't see it. So now, not only do we have every access to every game, with the March Madness Live app and streaming stuff on your computer, I can watch every game anywhere I go. Like when I was walking around, if I was doing some stuff, like on the bus with, with Creighton in Fort Worth, I could Pull up the March Madness app and watch it on my phone in a bus. Like it's just, it's amazing the advancements and how far we've come from how we used to consume the NCAA tournament, where we had we had access to like one game at a time and that was it. Now we get to watch every game on True TV, TNT, TBS, CBS. We can stream them online, stream them on our phone. Just makes the it makes the tournament that much more enjoyable that you get to watch every single game. Now, obviously, CBS would have cut into St. Peter's, Kentucky, but you might not have been able to watch a lot of St. Peter's, Kentucky in the first round. There's some great finishes that you wouldn't have seen. I mean, think the end if you remember that St. Peter's, Kentucky was going on around the same time as Yukon UConn, New Mexico State. Those are two great games coming to an end that were going to be two big upsets that like. You wouldn't have been able to see both of them probably. So it's just amazing how far we've come. It's amazing how far we've come. Shouts out to true TV and Turner and CBS for making all this happen, man. It's great. And the March Madness app. It's amazing. All right. I'll end it there. Enjoy the final four games this weekend. Again, I got, I got Duke and KU winning and I'll take Duke cutting down the nets. Um, Man, it should be two great semifinal games and a great national title on Monday. I'll have some some thoughts on the title game on my next uh, podcast. Plus, it's spring. It's Husker Spring Game week. Good lord, Husker Spring Game is just around the corner. Bo Rude and I'll have you covered with some some pods on that one. We'll have, I think we're going to record a spring game preview and for sure a spring game recap. So, so get ready for that. In the meantime, subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star rating and a review. Thanks for the support. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Have a great weekend, everybody. And Media Production.